Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, we will start in around five minutes. Uh, feel free to, in the meantime, check out the PDF that I pinned. Hi, Ilaria. How are you? Thank you for coming. Hello. Can you hear me already? Yes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Perfect. I already put the slides up. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. Now I just need to open them on my laptop. Uh, yeah, we still have five minutes, so you're fine. I hope everyone is doing well. Can you hear me well? Uh, yes. Yeah, we can hear you well. Thank you. And I will put the link to the paper into the chat, everyone. If you want to check it out again. And I also put in the chat a link to the uh, website where Laria is currently working as a postdoc, but I'll introduce, make the proper introduction in a few minutes. Feel free to uh, come up on the stage if you have questions, if you want to interact. And we will start shortly. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Katarina. Hey, everyone. seems like a Thanks pretty cool coming. topic. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting. Thank you. I am happy not to be the only one excited about these things. <laughs> we are a scientist self-help group. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, but sometimes, I, I guess, as scientists, sometimes you end up wondering whether you're the only one who actually cares. Because <laughs> it's like, am I diving too deep into this subject? Or is it still interesting? Yeah, I agree. I said, I told a friend of mine, if nothing else, we show scientists uh, that somebody else cares. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it's, people it's say... Very nice. Maybe it's people say in science then <laughs> instead of doing something else. <laughs> yeah, we'll start soon, soon everyone. Uh, things are coming. If you think a friend of yours would like to learn about this too, feel free to invite people. And uh, yeah, we'll start soon.
I don't know why it didn't work to invite before the other person, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep trying. And yeah, welcome everyone. We'll start in a couple of minutes. Uh, feel free to um, check out the paper link that I shared in the chat, the website, um, uh, uh, you know, some information about Nyaria, and then also the PDF on top that will be the slide presentation that uh, is going to be used. So feel free to open it, check it out. In the meantime, uh, we will start in a minute and share the room if you feel like this is something other people would enjoy as well. And um, yeah, we are very happy to have Yaya here today uh, talking about this really interesting topic. Um, which I only really thought about in a history class, you know, in high school we had the class about how youth came up. Um, so it's really interesting to see your hard science uh, um, evolution class, like study about this. Uh, that's why I really, you know, and enjoyed reading it and and invited you, Willaria. Um, and oh, we can start. Uh, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you, Willaria Bertelli. Um, uh, we appreciate so much that you came here today and before we'll start, I'll give a little bit of a background information. Um, Ilaria did her bachelor's degree in biology at the um, University de study di Padova um, with um, cum laude and uh, then she did her master's at the same university also with cum laude and I think this title was the flight of the bumblebee size related differences in flight performance and adaptation to pesticides induced stress which is also sounds like a really interesting research and then she did her PhD at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropo Anthropology at the Department Human Behavior, Ecology and Culture. And um, about uh, this um, project that she will present here today. And um, Ilaria's background is mostly in evolutionary biology. And um, she is particularly interested in evolution of human traits concerning life history, sociality, and behavior. And um, she is now a postdoc or research fellow in the evolutionary anthropology department at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. So welcome. Thank you so much for coming. And um, we usually start with a short interview, if uh, that's okay with you. And the first question would be, how did you discover a passion for science or that you wanted to um, go into science, become a scientist? Was it something maybe you always wanted to do or was there something that triggered that um, interest? Thank you. Well, first, thank you, Katarina, for inviting me for this. I am very, very happy to be here. 
and be able to you know show, share my research and 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 you know scientific interest with the larger public. And thank you for your uh, kind introduction. So um, as you said, I am an evolutionary biologist, and um, this means that I actually came to science in general and to um, to this research in particular from uh, biology. And this is because basically since when I was a kid, I kind of really liked to look at animals and the way they were behaving. So at some point, my dream was to be an ecologist. And uh, uh, I was look reading Conrad Lawrence and thinking, oh, how cool to look at how animals behave and, um, and try to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I think my, my main interest was looking at animal behavior. And, um, and then I also really wanted to travel and see the world and have different experiences about it. And somehow the ca scientist career puts together uh, a passion for studying behavior and, and the possibility to actually see it enacted by people all over the planet. Um, and so I did like the idea of living abroad as a scientist, which you know has, uh, as I believe many people know, the pro and cons. There's always the need to move, but also the possibility to learn uh, about life in many other countries. And I had the opportunity to do field work, which was not part of this research that I'm presenting uh, today. But uh, during my PhD, I did one year uh, of field work in East Africa, and that was also very um, rewarding, uh, both scientifically, but especially from the personal side. Um, so I think I think I have a general interest in behavior and understanding why animals behave in a certain way, and um, and with many of the perks of uh, and, and an interest for many of the perks of, of the scientist career uh, itself, like the traveling and the possibility to engage with cool people and to research on, on in subject, subjects that are interesting. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's how my interest in science came up. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, you could follow, you know, exactly what you wanted to do. That's, uh, that's wonderful. And um, I feel like, you know, we or people are very lucky that that can do that. And, and then is there maybe for this specific project, is there like a background story, uh, how this project came about and you came, you know, to do the research um, on this topic? Like, was it easy, um, you know, to get, I don't know, funding or um, was it really hard um, to do this? You know, whatever, like, insight you can give us. Thank you. Uh, so first, the first passage that brought me to this project was uh, to move from studying, you know, to thinking about studying other animals. I did my master on on eusocial insects and bumblebees to actually deciding to um, study humans um, and human behavior. And uh, I, I was looking at PhD offers and somehow everything seemed very specific. And I kind of felt the need for something, some some wider breath. And human evolution is, I think, an incredibly interesting subject um, that still requires a lot of of research. And so first, I became interested, uh, more interested in human evolution, and I actually got the PhD position. 
And in there, I decided to study the evolution of childhood. And in deciding so, I got in touch with uh, Shana Lulevi, who is one of my co-authors on this paper. And Shana, who is at uh, Durham University right now, she's, she's literally a power of science. She's just uh, always coming with new ideas and new projects and new things to do. And so relatively early in my, in my PhD uh, progress, she suggested that we do um, a meta-analysis of children foraging return studies or of um, a, a review of studies that uh, include children foraging returns. And so this is how the idea for this project or the birth of this project uh, came to be. And then from there, we involved Eric Wingen, who's uh, the staff expert on this project. He was uh, incredibly good and he's now um, a data scientist at uh, Zurich University. Um, but uh, by the time we were the three of us, uh, PhD students um, learning, or well, Shana had just finished, but uh, Eric and I were still in the middle of our PhDs. So we decided to do a project together and to use the wealth of data that's available in the literature, because um, we are the three of us interested in life history evolution and we all worked on foraging returns. And foraging returns are incredibly delicate data. Uh, foraging, with foraging returns, I mean uh, data that are collected by following people who go hunting or gathering food. So this involves researchers spending time in a foreign place with uh, populations that still rely at least partially on hunting and gathering. And it requires a lot of time because it's either it requires either following individuals around or uh, being able to track uh, foraging expeditions uh, that uh, delve into the forest or uh, that leave camp. Um, and so this data is incredibly costly to be collected and incredibly precious. And any uh, and it's also really, really needed because there are so many hypotheses and and um, that that involve human evolution that rely on on data on foraging. And there is quite a lot of data on foraging, but it's not super high quality and it's definitely not enough. And also to um, study foraging, we need always to be aware of the differences that there are between populations, between resources. And, and so we are basically limited by, you know, funds and by time and other things by, from collecting the quality of data that we want, but there is data online, there is data in papers that are published, and this data should be used um, to, to do science. So uh, that's where we started and uh, we, we developed the project, uh, a project that was looking at the evolution of childhood with uh, a variety of uh, foraging data from children in the literature. Well, that's really interesting to learn, um, yeah, the background, how, you know, the data collection, how precious it is, precious it is. Um, is it also maybe one of those that we kind of have to hurry up because the um, environment where people can still have this type of lifestyle is dying out and we kind of should 
focus this is on... definitely the case yes mm. uh, so well historically even in relatively recent history hunter gatherers has been have been um, kicked out of their traditional uh, hunting and foraging areas but even on a slightly longer time depth hunter gatherers are not anymore in the most productive areas of the planet if you, if we look 10,000 years ago the beginning of of in, of you know farming practices the whole world was inhabited by hunter gatherers and they were practicing all sorts of really complex hunting and gatherings there were complex societies living out of hunting and gathering and of course these people are not around anymore because already for you know hundreds or th even thousands of years they've been displaced by farming communities uh, and so there is a whole lot of data that is not available because of historical, like deep historical reasons. And, you know, there is nothing to do about that apart from trying to interrogate a little bit the archaeological data. But um, but even the last remaining hunter-gatherers are both, uh, like, uh, either being kicked out of their last remaining areas, which are often desertic or uh, semi-desertic or the depths of the jungle where it's not really easy to go, and this is happening because, um, like all the fringes of the deserts, often pastoralists have been uh, moved to to the savanna areas that are in the fringe of deserts, and then the hunter-gatherers are put into the desert. Or um, the deep forest, for example, in Congo, has been uh, largely uh, occupied by by wood collectors. So hunter-gatherers that used to have uh, pretty uh, let's say pristine although it's 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 very delicate to talk about what is pristine and what is natural whatever but you know that had uh, a lifestyle that had not changed for many thousands of years are now uh, working in close con uh, contact with uh, with uh, you know the market world and and woodcasters uh, and so yes there is a lot of loss of, in the environment but there's also other things like uh, the life of a hunter-gatherer is, you know, uh, it has ups and downs, and then there are, um, there can be, uh, you know, climate change that impacts, uh, or also like just normally, uh, particularly dry years can have an impact on hunter-gatherer communities stronger than on, you know, us who rely on the food that comes from all over the world. And, um, and so often uh, hunter-gatherers are, are rich by NGOs, which is, you know, good. Um, but also they are becoming often more and more reliant on, on uh, carbs that are imported. So, for example, um, in many places, the last, you know, large communities of hunter-gatherers in Africa are often also being engaged in tourism, which is also a really good thing because, you know, we cannot just complain about people being kicked out of their environments by climate change or, or human activities and not want them to engage in something else. So for example, the Hazna in Tanzania, they're uh, often engaged in tourism so people can go see how they live. Um, and this is a great activity and bring some money to these communities. And then often people bring by, you know, uh, complex carbs like, or simpler carbs like um, maize or, or cassava. Uh, with this money. So although they're not really changing their lifestyle, they're not becoming farmers, and they're still relying on hunting and gathering for a proportion of their diets, their diets are not the same. So um, I think uh, I think we have to be 
careful when we think about hunter-gatherer communities in the sense that all of these people are modern people living in the modern world and you know often they are connected on the internet and they are on facebook and uh, they are definitely not relics of the past but they are often uh, having behaviors that we do not do not observe as much in um, in modern communities although if you think about it with some care actually almost all societies on earth do some foraging um for example you know berry picking or uh you know you can get chestnuts or mushrooms uh these are all foraging activities that are uh, almost irrelevant part of our diets but there is still some foraging going on um we could study this type of foraging sometimes uh but it's kind of hard because it's a very sparse behavior so you try to go to places where people actually do forage at a faster, you know, a more dense, denser rate, they forage more often. So yeah, these are very precious data, and and we have. Sorry, I'm just stepping one moment back. We do have some really, really beautiful data collected uh, since the 70s and 80s from some of the hunter-gatherer communities, and these data are literally gold. Um, but still, they are from very few communities, so any other data that we can collect on uh, even hunting and gathering from non-strictly hunter-gatherer communities is definitely helpful. So Yeah, yeah thank you for, for that background. And, and one last question. Um, are hunter and gatherers also more nomadic, or is that not the case? Like, does it, you know, doesn't correlate? At all. Um, so there is obviously a lot of variability and it's often linked to the environment, but um, yes, so they're less, definitely less stable than agricultural communities. Uh, but actually, so in, in anthropology, people often distinguish uh, hunter-gatherers, um, pastoralists, horticultural and agricultural communities. And actually we have data on, uh, like we know that the only relatively stable lifestyle is the agricultural one because even horticulturalists which are cultivating they plant uh, and they harvest but they are often practicing what we call the slash and burn uh, um, agricultural life the lifestyle in which they uh, arrive in a new area they cut and burn the a, a, a plot they plant their plants and then often they move on and they go to some other place and then they come back just when the uh, when the plot has ripened and there's actually food on the plot. And we have information on, like we have uh, data on the existence of these methods um, in the depth of the Amazon for thousands of years. Um, so we, yes, uh, hunter-gatherers are mobile, but they're definitely not the only mobile ones. And we actually also know that really early agricultural people uh, behaved like um, horticulturalists and often were very, very, were nomadic and seasonal in their nomadism in the sense that they would spend uh, play uh, time where they harvested food when it was needed and then they would just go away and do something else. Um, yeah, thank you. Interesting. I'm thinking immediately how we can protect in the future, you know, none of the modern societies have really room for mobile people, I think. 
you know, you need to register in a specific place to get healthcare and whatnot. You know, I don't know how we will solve that, but yeah, I mean, many many of these uh, nomadism is still like intra country, right? I I have a friend who works in in Mongolia and she works on settlement pattern uh, in Mongolia and lots of people in Mongolia are still nomadic because they live of um of sheep, they they are farmers, they're pastoralists and they they're not farmers, they're pastoralists and they actually, you know, live in yurtas and go all over and then at some point they stay sometimes in the city and then they leave again. Um so I think I think there are a lot of production means that are uh, compatible with a more nomadic lifestyle that are and also potentially more environmental friendly uh, and these things um, that have been practiced for thousands of years. And so, yes, uh, probably, you know, we don't need as much to actively preserve these lifestyles, uh, but rather you know, leave the possibility of people to choose what they want to do because um, you get, you know, you get people from hunter-gatherer communities who are like, uh, well, I'd rather live in a city, goodbye. And and other people who would really, really like to keep living in their in their ancestral lands and, um, and keep practicing their ancestral lifestyles, but they are encroached by pastoralists who are then themselves moved away from other areas where maybe they're planted, planting some soya. Um, so it's it's really, you know, you, it's really complex systems. And yeah, giving some opportunity to keep doing what your ancestors did. Um, uh, also in a productive way, it's not about, you know, protecting like uh, like the, the, the grizzly in, in the Yellowstone National Park is really, um, facilitating some production means that are compatible with the lifestyle that you choose. Uh, so for example, tourism in this sense is, is, is great for many hunter-gatherer communities. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so for everyone that the slides um, are pinned on top of the room, please feel free to open the link. And the stage is yours, Laria, thank you. Okay, now it's up to me to talk about some of this science. Um, so as, as Katarina introduced me early on, I am an evolutionary scientist, I'm a biologist by formation, and I study humans um, and, and human traits and, and how they evolved. And um, my general area of focus is uh, life history. And what is now life history? So life history is the sequence of events that happen during an organism lifetime. So if you, you know, if you think of an organism, you think of it and an organism is born and then probably grows and develops until at a certain point it matures and starts reproducing until at some point they probably grow old and die. And this whole process is, is interconnected with energy. Um, energy is needed to, 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 to grow and develop, but also to reproduce and, and to prevent oneself from, from growing old and die. So think of it as a, as a game, you get, um, there are turns and at each turn you get a certain amount of energy and you can invest it either in growth, maintenance or reproduction. And, and if, you can, if, you, if you use one amount of energy to grow larger, then you won't have a baby now, but maybe if you have a baby, then you don't have as much energy for self-preservation uh, and so on. And um, because 
these things trade off one with the other and you cannot invest the same unit of energy in two different functions. Um, when and how much energy is invested in growth, maintenance and reproduction is subject to nat natural selection. And hence there's, um, there's evolution that involves life history traits. Now, what, what do I mean with this? Uh, so the kind of unit of measure of evolution is fitness. Uh, in proper terms, fitness is the proportion of future generations that descend from a lineage. But for now, and for like roughly speak, speaking so that we understand each other, we can think about it as the number of surviving offspring that an organism have. Um, and this is the unit under selection. So selection acts to improve the number, to increase the number of, of offspring that uh, organisms have. And life history traits have a lot of implication for, for fitness. Because uh, if you, for example, if you're an organism, you can decide and you, can, well, you don't decide, but you can either reproduce now and make, for example, five eggs, or you wait another year and you spend this year growing. And then by next year, you can make 50 eggs. And then you have higher fitness, a higher number of offspring. And maybe this is, might be favorite in certain conditions. Or once you've made an egg, you can actually invest in parental care and protect the egg or simply move on and, and then make another egg somewhere else as fast as possible. And all of these things have an impact on how many surviving offspring you will have at the end of your life, and hence which traits will spread in the population, because organisms who make more offspring, uh, the traits of organisms that end up making more offspring will diffuse in the population and become prevalent. So in certain environmental conditions, maybe more parental care is favored, Maybe in other situations, eggs are not at risk. So um, individuals who make more eggs but don't care for them have actually more descendants. And all of these life history traits um, are uh, connected to the environment, but also uh, to phylogenetic constraints. So some lineages have longer lifespans because um, uh, of certain initial conditions, and then these things can be um, carried on. And this creates, along the tree of life, a huge amount of variation. So, for example, um, on slide three, I showed two pictures of two different organisms. On the left, we have uh, a, huge uh, a huge tree. This is a really large organism. It's an oak uh, that lives in South Carolina. It's called angel oak and is estimated to be three, um, three to five hundred years old. So this oak might have been there before Colombo set sail from, um, from the Iberic Peninsula. And um, this is not uh, super unusual for oaks to live several hundred years. And um, they are also characterized by a late age at first reproduction. So they start having this, making acorns around 20 or 30 years. And they actually can produce a huge amount of acorns during their lifetime, up to 50,000. Um, but uh, we are not like the world is not covered in oaks because actually they don't invest much in protecting their acorns, which end up largely eaten by squirrels, but and also have relatively low germination rates. So the uh, uh, oaks invest much, very much in number, but not as much in um, in uh, quality of offspring. But then when an individual grows, it becomes huge and is very um, and invest a lot in maintenance. On the other hand, we have um, 
we have aphids, which are these green insects that you can see in this picture on the right, but also you often find them on the plants on your balcony or on your garden. Uh, and then come summer, they start reproducing like crazy. They are um, really small insects um, who have a very interesting life cycle in the sense that um, a female um, can reproduce asexually. So they, they, give, uh, they actually give birth to live offspring they don't make eggs and without having sex, uh, without um, being fertilized. And this makes them incredibly fast at reproducing. So they are very small, they live a very short time, but they can very fast grow on your plant and, and uh, uh, you know, make your plant not very happy by an excessive number of aphids. Um, but then also uh, they have a problem because they don't invest as much in, uh, in maintenance. And when winter comes, they usually die by the bunch. And there are just some individuals who are often sexually, like uh, the product of sexual reproduction, who overwinter and give birth to new specimen, uh, specimens the following year. Um, so there is a lot of variability uh, across um, across species, and if we move a little bit closer to humans, uh, we can look at what happens with chimpanzees. Uh, chimpanzees are a bit more like oaks; they live a long time and they take a really long time to mature. But differently from um, oaks, they and also from aphids, they invest a lot in parental care, and so um, and they take care of their children for for almost a decade. Um, and this means that they end up having a very small number of offspring. So, for example, um, we know that Flo, who was uh, a chimpanzee in Gombe National Park, where Jane Goodall started studying uh, ape behavior, um, she, had, she was a pretty successful chimpanzee and she had five children. And I think the highest number of uh, offspring that were ever recorded for a chimpanzee in the wild was seven, which is not a big number uh, at all. And this is what we call life history, as low life history. So a long life, that uh, a delayed age, a very late age, age of maturity, a small number of offspring. And this is a characteristic type of uh, slow life history. And uh, humans look a little bit the same. We are also large-bodied mammals, so we live a long time. And we are, uh, as part of the uh, primate clade, we are slow. But even within this clade, we are really, really slow. Um, we have uh, uh, other, like some specific traits. We have exceptionally loved, uh, and these are listed on slide four, if you want to go check them out, and also on a paper that, uh, where there's the link on slide four. Um, they, we live uh, really long lives. We take a really long time to, um, to develop. Uh, we start reproducing quite late. And we have a really, really long period of dependency from uh, adults, uh, from, from our parents or our parents. And despite this, we actually managed to have a pretty high fertility for primates. Um, it is not at all unusual for individuals who are trying uh, to maximize the number of offspring or to have as many children as possible to have 10 or more children. And um, we can do this because we are not waiting for the first child to be out of the house and completely independent before having a second child, as many animals do, but rather we we, we just have multiple uh, dependent offspring at the same time um, that uh, are dependent from uh, from the same uh, reproductive couple. 
And these are many individual, like specific traits that, that are uh, spe special to humans. And many of these, they pivot around a special human period. And this is childhood. So what is childhood? Childhood is a period of time and it's defined as the period between weaning, so when uh, individuals stop um, being breastfed, and adolescence. It is characterized by a slow somatic growth, so children grow much slower than infants or teenagers, and you might have noticed this if you ever had to buy clothes for you know, a growing human. Uh, but um, there are other things that happen. For example, uh, during this time, the brain grows really, really fast and it reaches uh, actually adult size much before the, the body does. And uh, so it, the, the brain reaches adult size when individuals are about 10 or 12. And also there are changes behavior in, in behavior. Because even though children are still dependent from, from adults for provision and protection, this, they become more adventurous and they start trying out stuff and behaviors and sometimes copying adult behavior, sometimes by themselves or in groups, and uh, often start helping in the house or and especially in food production, which is where we are actually interested in this um, paper. But it's important to note that this period is unique to humans. Um, for example, chimpanzees tend to move quite seamlessly from being a useless infant to a largely independent young adult. And this trying out period, this period in which the body is um, grows much slower, but the brain is fully grown, this, this requires some evolutionary explanation. And one of the leading hypotheses is called embodied capital hypothesis. Um, and um, so this has been proposed by Kaplan and colleagues uh, in 2000. And it takes uh, inspiration from a, from a theory in economics that explains why individuals will forego immediate gains, uh, so in their salary, to spend time and often money to acquire education. So the idea is that the things that you learn will allow you to have higher sal salary later on and a total higher lifetime earning. So when you take this uh, theory and you translate it to life history theory, and you substitute money for offspring, uh, what Kaplan and colleagues suggested is that humans tend to postpone reproduction because, um, uh, because by learning things, they can actually have more offspring later on. Or uh, more specifically, individuals that spend time becoming better foragers by acquiring somatic and cognitive embodied capital, which is um, what we call these traits that are uh, acquired uh, during childhood, for example, uh, the knowledge about the environment or foraging abilities such as spear throwing or even just becoming stronger and investing in your body. So foragers who do these things will be able to invest more energy, to harvest more energy from the environment when they are adult and, and, and hence maintain a larger number of children and hence have higher fitness so that um, at the end of it, learning and waiting to reproduce uh, is a trait that is favored by natural selection. So they also suggest that there is uh, th th this process happens because uh, humans learn to exploit in every environment the most energy dense resources. Um, no matter how complicated it is to get uh, food, they always target the best food that is in the environment, the food that is the most uh, productive in there. So. Um, uh, they make a connection between niche complexity and the evolution of human life history. 
So we spend time as children learning about the environment so that we can exploit a very complex niche and maintain many children when we are adults. And this is the hypothesis that we are trying to test uh, in this paper. And it is a very difficult hypothesis to test because uh, we talk about data quality, we did about data availability. We cannot go back in time and actually see what happens. We cannot make experiments uh, on human evolution. And also the traces of behavior in the archaeological record are often really hard to interpret. So many research uh, has been done, like not many, but like some research has been done uh, with an approach that, that looks at, um, at foraging behavior in cont contemporary hunter-gatherers. Um, so people who still rely on, on hunting and gathering and other subsistence populations who still hunt and gather. Um, so for example, um, uh, there is a, a really interesting paper that we uh, actually is the basis that we started from uh, to work on, on our paper, which is also published on Science Advances by Costa et al. Um, it's cited on page eight and there's also a link if you want to go check it out. Uh, this paper tests one of the assumptions of the embedded capital hypothesis, so that learning to forage requires a long time. Is a really uh, simple assumption, but it's um, it, it needs to be tested, and um, they focus on one specific type of foraging, which is hunting, that is considered particularly difficult because when you hunt, you have to uh, have ecological knowledge uh, to know where the preys go or uh, where to find them and how to recognize the traces and track the, the preys down, and also you need to have physical abilities to actually accomplish the killing and actually bring food home. So uh, in order to look at the development of foraging proficiency uh, and how this um, changes during uh, the lifetime, they compiled a really impressive data set. They um, actually called researchers and asked them to share their data and they uh, collated um, a, a huge sample of 40 studies from um, tropical areas uh, where the last remaining hunter-gatherer populations are, are largely residing. Um, as we said before, they've been often pushed into desertic, semi-desertic, or in the depths of the forest areas. Um, but there are also still some hunting-gathering populations in, um, in the north. You can see Inuit, uh, uh, for example. Uh, these marginalized areas still uh, harbor some hunter-gatherer people. And um, they have uh, more than 1,800 individual foragers, and for many of them, they have longitudinal data uh, coming from multiple years because of these really incredible data sets that have been collected in the, in the, from, set from the 70s to, or 80s to open the 90s or early 2000s. Uh, and in total, um, so there's a lot of variability between sites on, on the quality of the site. There's one site that has uh, a huge proportion of the data and others that contribute to just a handful of data points, um, but it's still really impressive data set uh, with more than 23,000 uh, observations. They also develop a really cool set uh, in which the, um, the, the model, like the, the, the function of a skill with age is the, is the product of two different functions. There's a growing function and a decreasing function that describe a variation in foraging skill with age. So there's a development uh, side that uh, is called the knowledge and a senescence component that describes the decline of foraging ability with age. 
and there's a resulting curve which is uh, called skill and that grows and then reaches a peak and then declines. And what they do in this paper is they look at how, when and how this curve peaks and how it's shaped around the peak and they make inferences about the evolution of life history. And uh, on, on slide, um, I think it's nine or 10, probably 10, um, the, um, the show, the, there's a plot that shows uh, all of these curves and they find that the statistically average hunter in this sample reaches peak hunting skill around 33 years of age. Um, but the peak is on average quite flat and individuals uh, have uh, a close to maximum skill from 18 to 56. And across societies, across the 40 societies, the peak is always kind of late, so between 24 and 45 years of age. And this is interpreted um, as a, a support for the embodied capital hypothesis because uh, it takes a long time to actually reach your peak foraging skills. And um, it takes the whole developmental time and some more uh, often foraging hunting skills peaks after peaking strength. And then, uh, so this is, this is you know, encouraging, nice uh, hunting data support the, the body capital hypothesis. But then there's a whole lot of other um, data uh, that come from different resources. So um, we, uh, we actually found that uh, in collecting shellfish or, or fruits, children become pretty good collectors pretty early on. And, um, and for example, Critton and colleagues uh, recorded that a couple of Hadza foragers that live in eastern uh, Tanzania collected enough fruit, enough fruit to meet their energy requirements on multiple days, um, which is not exactly what a body capital hypothesis says. Is that, like, the, the idea is you need to learn to forage complex things. You cannot forage everything you need really early on. Um, but these data, uh, these data come from the baobab fruit season. So uh, the baobab, you know, the big tree, you might not know it, but it produces uh, lots of really fleshy and um, caloric dense fruits. And then when the baobab is in season, then you can collect, uh, climb a baobab, collect a lot of fruit and actually have a lot of food. Um, but not only baobabs are not seasonal, but also fruits, uh, fruits are not enough to maintain a humans and especially developing one. So, um, so we, there's, uh, we need different resources to, to eat. And um, there is obviously a lot of viability between the resources in how long it takes to learn to forage them. And indeed, another of the predictions of the embodied capital theories is that more complex resources take longer to learn to be foraged than easier ones. And, um, and so we tackled this prediction. We looked especially at this prediction in uh, our paper. And the first thing that we had to do was to try to understand uh, what is the difference between easy resources and complex resources. This is not an easy task, um, but uh, in, a in a paper I really like, uh, Caroline Shukri and colleagues um, list some characteristics that make a foraging niche complex. For example, eating grass is easier than picking fruits because you have to know where and when to find mature uh, fruits, but uh, ripe fruits. But, um, but other resources that require extraction, like uh, shellfish uh, or tubers, uh, are even more complicated than fruits 
and um, finally things that move and need to be hunted down are even more complicated. So uh, we, we ranked the resources in this order with uh, fruits and then shellfish and, 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 and uh, fish and then tubers and then game. And this was our hypothesis. There's a connection between the complexity and the rate at which foraging species acquire during the lifetime. And we focused on, on data um, up to 20 years, partially because that's how data are structured in the literature, but also because on the, on the early ages up to 20 years is where we expect the differences between complex and resources to emerge. Um, so with this uh, design, we moved on to our foraging data, to our, no, to our foraging of the data. So we started harvesting data from the internet and in there, we found a bunch of papers uh, that had data on foraging returns of children. Uh, we selected all, uh, all of those that actually had foraging returns for children and teenagers, because many of them talk about foraging, but they don't actually have foraging returns. They might have time allocation, so they might tell how much time a child has spent on foraging, or you might say how many uh, how many um, specimens a child has killed during their lifetime but we actually needed uh, quantitative detailed data. And so we focused on these papers and from all of these papers, we extracted the relevant information from uh, either tables or plots. And uh, we extracted data from the plots thanks a very helpful R package that's called MetaDigitalize. And there's a link on slide 13 if you are in academically interested in understanding this process um, to the paper and uh, which allowed us to click on points and basically get back um, a measure, the, me the original measure that created the plot. Um, we also included a good amount of data uh, on hunting that was published alongside the Costa et al paper that I talked earlier on, uh, because uh, this Costa et al, like our, uh, our uh, paper, has uh, an open data policy and uh, all the data, this, in, uh, this food data that they produce is openly available online. And so what, uh, what was our data set at the end of it? Uh, we had a bit over 700 individuals uh, coming from 28 societies for a total of uh, just under 2300 data points. And on slide 14, there are our, um, our uh, data points, our um, societies, um, that uh, come from a bit all over the world. And in terms of analysis, we build on the model that was developed for the Costa et al paper, uh, which is a harder model that uh, accounts for zero, uh, zero and non-zero returns. Uh, but uh, starting from there, we developed our own analysis, which needed to be able to deal with the different types of data that were coming from the different sources of papers, because our data was more varied than the one in the cost et al. So we needed a bit more post, um, not post-processing, but post-accounting for the differences. Um, and, and in general, what we wanted to do was to model foraging returns as a function of age, sex, and type of forage resources, so that we could look at how age trends vary across resources. We also included a latent variable for skill and uh, where skill summarizes basically the ability of foragers to harvest resources. It's a combination of all different embodied capitals that we talked about uh, earlier without delving into distinguishing between them. And um, skill basically in our model mediates the effect of age and sex on foraging return. 
and um, allows us to make some additional inference. So what happens at the end? Um, our model yielded a series of curves that represent, uh, and you can see this in slide 16, um, that represent basically the proportion of maximum foraging performance at each age. So uh, all the curves meet at age 20 and uh, they acquire different, they get uh, different shapes before that, depending on how fast the uh, foraging proficiency for that uh, resource is acquired. And uh, on slide 14, uh, 16, there's a darker line for each resource, which is the mean for that resource. And, that, and then the other lines are uh, means for each of the different data sets that we used. Um, and now we have these lines and we need to interpret them. Uh, so what we, uh, like the way to interpret them is that uh, the lines can be either convex or concave. So they can have uh, upward facing, like uh, an upward curve uh, that we define of diminishing returns. So that actually most of the improvement happens early in life. And then uh, later in life, there isn't as much improvement in foraging proficiency. And this is the case for, for fruits. Most of the improvement in returns is early in life for fruits. Um, we have a slightly intermediate pattern for fish and shellfish. And then we have really uh, concave functions for game and underground storage organs or tubers um, that show that actually children, for example, up to 10 years of age, really don't improve much in their uh, proficiency for, for harvesting these resources and most of the learning and the acquisition of foraging skill is later in life. But uh, we can get this, uh, we did uh, an additional analysis because we can actually get these curves in multiple ways. We can get these curves either because um, it takes longer to acquire the same amount of skill or because um, you need more skill to, uh, to actually accomplish something. So. If you need more skill to accomplish something, like the difference between an, an average and a low skilled is very high for resources that are not very skill intensive. And uh, the uh, whereas an average forager doesn't like does really is outcompeted by a good forager. And and so we looked at uh, at skill intensity, which is a measure of this is how much foraging depends on skill. And we find that game and tubers require more skill than fruits, um, so that uh, more uh, uh, game and, and underground storage organs are much more skill intensive. And um, so with this, uh, we don't think our findings are exceedingly exciting per se, because uh, we found that more complex resources take longer to acquire. But this is a key assumption of a large um, of a large uh, hypothesis for the evolution of human life history that needed testing and and so our finding that uh, it takes more time to learn to forage more complex resources and also that more skill is needed for more complex resources are uh, results that are consistent with the evolution with the embodied capital hypothesis and and the find that we we could uh, prove this thing was uh, I think um, helpful for, for the field. But actually, we also uh, like to think on a, on a slightly larger scale, because um, actually, all these things that we talked about, like the fact that we need to learn behavior to engage with the natural environment and, and external resources, um, 
is is um, is unique to humans. It's particularly characteristic of humans, and is one of the key characteristics that allows us that that make us different from many many other species of animals. So, so the fact that we largely rely on learned behavior rather than innate innate foraging abilities means we can actually live in many different environments and specialize in the unique characteristics of each of them. And, and we can do this in very few generations and in a very short time, rather than having to go through the process of natural selections to adapt to an environment. And um, moreover, because we target high quality food in, this, in each of these environments, we can actually have a really high fertility rates for our primates. And we know that a lot of the early colonization of the globe, so the spread out of Africa and so on, um, has has probably been demographically driven. So people like each generation they will move a little bit farther off from the previous one. The the fact that fertility is important and learning is important and childhood is is linked to both of them is fundamental. It means the childhood is fundamental for the expansion of humans on the planet in the last uh, few ten thousand years. And, and so this is our big picture. Uh, but uh, with this, I will thank you for your attention. But I also really need to uh, thank my co-authors that were really key in developing and carrying out this project. And I need to cough, sorry. <coughs> and also, of course, my founders, uh, my uh, institution during my PhD, Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, which founded me through the development of this uh, project, and uh, my current institution, which is in Toulouse in France and is uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies. And yeah, again, thank you for your attention and I am here for your questions. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, this really wonderful presentation you described so well, um, you know, the data sets and, and, and the big context. And uh, so, yeah, uh, this was really wonderful. And for everyone, if you have questions, comments, post them in the chat. I know some people already did um and um we we yet yeah, also raised the hand you people are welcome on the stage and well you know i wait for people to raise the hand or text me or message me more questions i'll i'll just ask um in the meantime questions i had um it's really interesting about the 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 skill intensity and um and comparing this uh, returns by resource um i that that was really interesting to me is there data also regarding like genetics um background in the different populations um you know that that would be really interesting um if there is so or... I am sure that this data would be really interesting, but there are so many st steps between, uh, you know, uh, the actual foraging performance and the and you know what is coded encoded in the genes that um, I would so much love to have individual like more individual level data on actually what we call in here um, embodied capitals. So it would be so much so very interesting to actually understand what is the role of uh, of strength or like physical abilities versus ecological knowledge or or other things um, in different societies with different types of foraging um, and uh, all of this is also complicated by the fact that 
uh, all of these activities are highly cultural, so they are socially learned, so they're very variable across societies. So um, I, we do not have uh, actual genetic data on the connection between uh, you know, gene variants and, and foraging behavior. And I actually don't think it would be easy to do anything like this, um, because as we know, the variation across the human population um, is really high, like within populations is also often really high. So I don't think there are many genetic variants that we can associate with foraging behavior. And actually, I believe that there are other individual level traits uh, in the phenotype that would be interesting to study, but we still don't have data for those. Um, so coming back to the, to the genetic thing, like there are some specific um, genetic variants that are associated to some specific forms of foraging. For example, I recall there should be somewhere an island in which people um, or a, a specific area where people practice a lot of night fishing because there was a founder effect and, and there was a, a large proportion of the population has some form of color, form of color blindness that makes them see re relatively well in the dark um, or, or these grayscales. So actually they specialize in one specific form of foraging, but this is really, really specific cases. And I don't think we can associate um, you know, large scale uh, data on, on genomics to foraging behavior. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I wanted to welcome Victoria. She's our co-moderator. Uh, thank you for coming, Victoria. Happy to see you. And the other question would be, you know, I don't know if there is, it would be filed in the future, but maybe some epigenetic data, um, you know, like, maybe the stability of foods uh, supply um, varies a lot and would be interesting to see if there's maybe a better coping mechanism reflected also in epigenetic um, data and heredity um, than populations that are settled for a long time and then have stress factors like uh, food instability or something like that. I would imagine that maybe over the generations there's some kind of resilience built up and I think it would be really interesting to see that also especially during childhood. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I think um, yeah I mean there's a whole uh, big interconnection between the diet like the behavior especially foraging behavior and, and uh, food procurement behaviors and the diets that individuals end up having and their metabolism. Um, and I think, um, I think there are some studies on how uh, metabolic functions in, for example, Hazda are changing in this, in this um, last decade because uh, many of this population are actively transitioning diet-wise from a um, more traditionally hunter-gatherer diet to a uh, diet relying on, on simple cultivated carbs with some addition from hunting and gathering. And um, so, yeah, definitely all of these things are highly interconnected and uh, we don't know exactly how, you know, starting to rely um, on, on, on simple carbs that are just brought in can uh, impact um, 
the metabolism and how um, you know at the end of it uh, body uh, BMI or, or these things will vary in, in hunter-gatherer populations and how this will affect actually foraging behavior um, or you know how much how much are the new generations actually going to learn about foraging when it would be maybe more possible to do something else um yeah i i know that at least uh, some camps where the hazda are living now people are largely living off um maize rather than tubers that they used to excavate um they still uh they still hunt uh, they still go on hunting expedition but a large part of the diet is not anymore given by forage foods and this obviously has impacts on metabolism which uh we know has long-lasting epigenetic effects on on uh, on yeah metabolism across generations with maternal, maternal effects and so on. So I'm sure there is something interesting going on, um, and that we should uh, spend more time trying to understand. Um, and it is it will especially be relevant, uh, I think, for uh, data that we keep collecting. Uh, on foraging behavior, although, um, again, I don't think that, like, I think there are so many downstream um, causes and factors affecting foraging behavior that um, that I don't think these upstream genetic causes are very, very relevant um, for foraging, uh, foraging observed behavior. That's, uh, hey, yeah, thank you. Um, and. It sounds like a very interesting field because there's still so much unknown. And um, how about the the age, like uh, hunters and gatherers, do they live quite long um, or is it hard to, you so, know? Uh, we know from this, uh, historical data and also from current hunter-gatherer or like recent hunter-gatherer demographic populations, but also from lots of um from lots of uh non super healthcare followed people that um that actually a lot of mortality uh for humans is typically happens early in childhood uh usually if you if a child in a hunter gatherer population or even agricultural population where healthcare is not prevalent reaches 5 years of age they will easily reach their 50s, 60s, often 70s or 80s as well. And people often maintain themselves pretty, uh, pretty healthy for a relatively long amount of time. So often people in their 60s and 70s are relatively healthy and well off. And then often there's a pretty f uh, fast um, downward slope and, um, and the decline is, is fast, but it's not early. And you can see uh, you can see in the um, slide ten where there is a big uh, sample with different societies. So there are uh, there are the forty societies in forty little squares. In each square, there's um, single curves curves of for individuals. And for each society, there is a, a range of ages for which there is data. So the orange section of the curve is where there is data on hunting and you can see that there are multiple societies in which uh, there's a hunting data almost close to 80 years of age i can see the Ache number 16 the agda number 34 
the I don't Waurani number six, they all have like the Shimane uh, number 14 and 15. There is a hunting data for people who at least claim to be 80, because I mean, there's a lot of um, discussion on age, uh, on defining age for uh, people who do not have birth certificates, but who are obviously old, you know, uh, and uh, they are. Like for many of these these people, we actually have um, birth uh, birth checks or like multiple um, censuses at different times, so we actually have a decent idea of how old they are, and um, and yeah, uh, we have data on hunting for people in their like in their seventies. Uh, so yeah, life like long lifespan is not a feature of modern medicine. Of course, people will not usually get into the nineties, but it's not uncommon to get to seventy, and like not uncommon to get to eighties, and definitely not uncommon to get into seventies. Although it's not everybody, and actually most uh, there is a large, a large infant mortality. And this is actually what is driving um, this, uh, you know, this average lifespan that you can see for um, some African countries or, or countries where um, healthcare conditions are really precarious. You see uh, average age span of like 35, 40, 45 years. This is not because everybody dies at 45. It's because there's a lot of child mortality and this really, really um, lowers the mean. And once you pass mortality, unless you have an accident, unless something really bad happens, but most people have a normal age development and they they die in their 70s or 80s uh, if something bad doesn't happen. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because probably to make it to that age, they have to stay healthy also and in advanced years which is not really the case in our society so it would be really interesting if it's like probably it's a mix of lifestyle and then also maybe epigenetics or you know that that are coming from lifestyle because you know in our populations we have maybe people around the 80s now most of the time but most people or a lot of people are quite unhealthy and could not uh, survive maybe in their uh, lifestyle environment so it would be really interesting to look at you know life yeah, so definitely definitely like in many cultures where again healthcare is not prevalent once uh, once the body starts to decline and people are really not able to uh, feed themselves, they have relatively uh, short remaining lifespan uh, after after this thing. Although uh, I I actually went to the field um, late 2022, and uh, the mother of a friend of mine uh, who is in her early 50s uh, was sick, and uh, she had been sick for several months, and she was uh, taken care. Uh, by the rest of the community, by her children, and she was in no way fit to to feed herself. She, uh, but uh, but she she was 
in this situation for many months because people around her were taking care of her. And this is a behavior that we know from the archaeological record of um, old people who had maybe jaw fractures, um, the fractures in their jawbone, relatively late in age, and these fractures um, were, uh, were at least partially um, recomposed because someone else was taking care of them and probably feeding them um, processed food. So caring even for old people is not a recent uh, thing, but definitely once one is not very autonomous anymore in old age, because of old age, the lifespan is much shorter than it is today. Um, this said, uh, we also know a lot about the effect of diet and behavior and unhealthy behavior on, on, early, um, on early somatic decline. And definitely uh, populations living in a more, uh, well, less processed food, no smoking, or not, not as much, well, not much smoking, not much drinking, it's just in some prescribed situations. And uh, they definitely have a much lower incidence of some of these diseases that we associate with bad behaviors. So uh, there's um, a really big uh, health project on um, a horticultural population in Bolivia, it's called Chimane, and they've been um, monitoring the level of, of um, um, accumulation of, um, of CLAC, the, the measure for uh, the risk of, um, well, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the specific words in English, but um, they, they've been looking at the risk of heart attacks and Chimane of different ages, and comparing to American population of the same ages, and it's significantly lower the accumulation of, of um, the occlusion of the arteries around the earth um, almost doesn't happen in people who are maintaining a traditional lifestyle, while people who are more, let's say, westernized, who live maybe closer to, to villages, um, to, to modern villages, or have uh, maybe smoke or, or do, uh, have a different diet, then these people are um, are actually having American-like or much closer to American-like uh, patterns of uh, arterial occlusions. Um, so we do know that there are lots of connections, of course, between behavior and and uh, risk for of diseases, um, and definitely it's not just it's not just hunter-gatherers, right? Like it's um, we, we know what the causes of, of this decline are, and there's uh, lots of populations and lots of diet and lots of things that actually are compatible with a healthy lifestyle. And it's really not that uh, complicated to think about a healthy lifestyle. What is complicated is follow it, because uh, we live in the modern world and there are lots of opportunities to fall out from what we know to be healthy, right? Uh, but uh, but definitely it is um, being in the middle of the, of the forest of you know of a savanna doesn't put you in touch with much opportunities for you to uh, have a bad diet. Let's say. Yeah, I wanted to give Victoria, hey Victoria, the opportunity to to ask a little bit. Um, and thank you. 
Thank you very much, Katarina. Welcome, Ilaria. I'm, I'm happy that I made it. I apologize. I, I had written down that the room started an hour later than it did. And I'm so happy that I was able to catch a little bit of it. Um, so your work is, is it's just beautiful and exciting. And, and I hope that, that what you've um, that what you've written will be shared far and wide. And, and, and I'm thinking of in fields of education. I work in education. I'm a um, science and art educator. And what I've, through what I've noticed um, observationally and studying is, is what you're describing as foraging behavior in children who are, who are able to, um, maybe what we would call, have experienced child-led ways of spending their time that that what i see is appears to be something like foraging and it could be it could be foraging for playmates or because these are children who don't have to look for their food to survive but but even foraging it it it, it um it could be foraging for snacks or foraging for a, a place to go but um applying i'm i'm ex sort of extrapolating this to maybe the teachings of maria montessori and she taught us that children have a cycle of time that that play is is that a child's work to be respected and that the cycle of time in any task that we see them doing is 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 helpful if we respect that so for example if a child looks like they're um you know examining a leaf then it would be it would be wise to let that child have you know have the beginning middle and end of that exploration and not assume that everything they're doing is, you know, is, is, um, is nonsense or not, not leading to a better, to some important outcome. And I'm, I'm reading in your work something that I'm, I'm wondering if you can discuss a bit in, uh, I'll read it to you. It was it's just really beautiful. It's uh, talking about age-graded division of labor. And you, it's in the article, it says, um, you're talking about age graded. To, I don't want to read the whole paragraph, but through which children may reap direct fitness benefits by exchanging the resources they collect with those more effectively collected by others and inclusive fitness benefits by helping close kin. And this to me, from my perspective, because we all bring our own experience, right? And, and maybe I'm taking meaning that that wasn't intended, but, but to me, that speaks to the benefits of um, mixed age groupings of children instead of having children only existing in school settings with their peers. And also it speaks to how important it is to have people together and, and being in community and learning and teaching each other. So I was curious what, um, what you might share about that, that Section so I, have, I have a lot to say about this, although uh, not much of it is actually part of my research. A lot of it is just my personal perception and my personal perception having spent some time in company of children. I, I've worked in summer camps. I spent a lot of time with children during my field work in East Africa. And uh, a lot of what you say is um, I very much agree. I have one presentation to make on this on the sentence that you cited in which uh, we talk about fitness and we are talking about um, evolutionary fitness. So the uh, proportion of descendants that we live in the in the next generations rather than like well-being. 
but this said, I also really think that um, the social aspect of of children uh, and also children productivity is key to children's well-being. I think um, I think um, I've had my best time going out uh, and maybe collecting some food or some berries. And this is definitely foraging, and this is definitely something that children tend to do with other children in playtime. And even uh, in Africa, I did collect foraging um, foraging data. Uh, and this is a population that uh, is agricultural, uh, has um, uh, cultivates most of the food that they produce. There's a lot of fishing, but um, the diet is relatively poor in proteins. So actually, children are often encouraged to go and uh, forage for their proteins or proteins for their family. But this is, you know, this is half play, half work time right like children are encouraged but it's not required of them um it's it is a time in which they can get out of the consoling look of their parents maybe they live with their older siblings with their neighbors they spend time in mixed age groups they learn from each other and um and they also feel helpful for the family they feel helpful for themselves they also get you know they go hunting maybe they get a bird they have a nice snack but um but this is definitely healthy mental time as well and i do think that um and actually there are some movements that actually promote foraging activities in children as a helpful activities um as a you know it's often berry picking mushroom mushrooming i remember collecting where i grew up there is this sort of wild asparagus that uh, is a vine but the, like the tip is like a tiny asparagus and i will we will go and harvest that and bring it home and have you know scrambled eggs with those it's delicious and and then you know like the whole family shares it but you collected it and it is it's nice um so yeah i completely agree with yeah this is this is what what you'd mentioned it's it's that it's the idea that play play or time spent that appears to be unconstructed or is not necessarily undirected or or not it, it doesn't that children's time that it is beneficial and and so I, I understand the difference between um this genetic fitness that we're using and and well-being but one one does lead to the other um and and so it's it's exactly that that this this work that you've done really speaks to that and as so I'm I was a homeschooling parent and and also have led lots of homeschooling groups and one of the things that I, I see children really love to do that that goes in alignment with this with the foraging behavior it's it's just so fascinating to me to you know to read that this is what your work is about this behavior and if the behavior of foraging maybe it's like when a dog looks like it's sniffing over here and then it sees something and sniffs over there but it's learning and gathering information and maybe compare that with gathering food um those that oh my goodness i got off on a tangent <laughs> excuse me i'm trying to I, I had i had um a point i was i was wanting to share with you about that I, it's um excuse me for being overzealous about your work but it's so darn exciting oh yes that that it's also 
from from my perspective as a homeschooling parent with children or a group of uh, having responsibility for a group of children in a wild setting it's a safety feature to have them be able to recognize edible plants for example and toxic right and so one of the first things I would do is is a safety show them this is edible we can eat this we can eat this we can't eat that and that's always something that they really want to know because I'm thinking it's fun it's in engaging them with their environment which we all come from whether we grow up in an urban environment or not we are of nature and I believe that innately we are we know it and we're attracted to that relationship so it's naturally really fun for kids and feels is really empowering to them to to be able to have that responsibility of knowing I can eat this and I can't eat that and eating is survival so again it comes back to your research why it's it's just it's so important and I hope that it it does um, reach a lot of ears who are maybe outside of those it was intended for well thank you thank you very much I am really happy that uh my research, like our research, because uh, again, this is a collab very much a, co a collaborative effort. And actually on these themes, I think uh, my co-author, Shana Lulevay, uh, she's amazing and she really works much more closely on children learning and uh, the relation between learning and the foraging. Uh, so if you want you know, to have another conversation on these subjects, I'm sure she will definitely be a person for you to speak with. Uh, but you know, for us, I think for any researcher to realize that the research that they do can be inspirational for people outside the small field area is definitely rewarding. So thank you very much. So there's yeah. a question in the chat by Nemanu and uh, the, the answer for why my data does not include in India and China, which are definitely a large uh, portion of the population. The answer is that these data are currently not available. Um, there are lots of uh, research that starts to be done in China and is uh, more widely shared with the um, rest of the world. But uh, as far as I know, China does not have hunter-gatherer populations. There is one long-lasting hunter-gatherer population on the Andaman Islands in India. Uh, there are no foraging data that I know of coming from this population. Uh, still, uh, the point is, we are talking about foraging data, so data about hunting and gathering, and most in India and, uh, and China are uh, agricultural populations since uh, the dawn of, not, I mean, I'm going to say the dawn of time, but in the sense that um, they've been in the independent centers for the acquisition of, um, of uh, agriculture. So uh, we do not have data from India and China for two reasons. One, because uh, it's kind of complicated to get data from there uh, because um, um, of permits and so on. And they do, like there's a lot of research, especially in China, but it's largely published in Chinese. So I, I unfortunately don't speak Chinese, so I don't have access to this thing. But the other aspect is that we are not looking at a representative sample of the current world population. We are looking at um, as much variability as possible from a ancient, largely abandoned um, lifestyle that is not much present in this country. I hope this helps. I lost audio for a second. Katarina, could you hear Ilaria, what she was saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. 
Good. It's important. I wanted to make sure it wasn't only me. Um, also, thank you. Thank you for answering Namanu's question. It's it's wonderful to recognize the <laughs> the earth, the the whole world, and so many spaces are really, um, you know, maybe white European centering spaces, and and there is much research that does ignore populations so, that that are here but that's um, not what you're doing and so i'm i'm just you know i'm, yeah, I'm appreciating. i do think that like uh, our field is very sensitive to this subject because especially you know we we're we kind of bordering the evolutionary psychology and lots of uh, especially older evolutionary psychology is focusing on on western samples of uh, large university students whereas evolutionary anthropology has the research of diversity as a key uh, core concept uh, uh, actually has sometimes to fight in the other direction and think that there might be some general features of humanity that um, don't depend just on different on different between cultures. Um, so I'm very sensitive to this and uh, I'm happy to engage in conversation on the subject um, with, with you know participants who are interested. Yeah, thank you so much for asking the question and for answering it. Um, because yeah, it's really it's really important to make that clear and to give the reasoning. So um, so I I'm glad that the question was asked and that you answered it and that um, yeah that I guess we keep an eye out on this. It's probably very different for like health population data and so on there's still like not enough diversity and inclusion um, if you want me to answer yeah. also mohammed who talked about puberty and maturity and readiness to be independent and start families i can just say a word on that uh, and especially actually we had kind of this belief that when people were reached puberty they would start their families Actually, we know from ethnographic uh, and often also archaeological and historical records that this is really not the case, um, and that uh, for women across hunter-gatherer, across small-scale societies, let's say, uh, often the age of first reproduction is not before 20 years of age, uh, which is few years after um, after uh, puberty. Uh, and that uh, for males, often the age of first reproduction is quite later, and um, it and it can vary widely across across societies, especially for males. Um, so there's actually a lot uh, that we should think about when we uh, think about the past, and um, and especially like one of the key elements is uh, variation, often connected to. Uh, to ecology, in the sense that more um, richer ecolog ecologies can provide more food and then people start families earlier, but then uh, also culture and other aspects that um, can have really big uh, effect on, on the age at which you must start reproducing. Thank you. If I might just add a side comment to that, in the same vein as I was mentioning before about the importance of your work, that this question of, of puberty or readiness to be independent and start families, you're, 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 and with your partner, the research is demonstrating 
the importance and, and the legitimacy, the value of the activities of childhood. And, and I think that in our, in our cultures, we, have, um, we need to protect children against child labor, for example. But child labor mustn't be confused with, with the possibility for children to contribute to their families in, in ways that are appropriate for their ages, as, as you've discussed in, with, in this work. So I think that the ways that we live might tend to ameliorate the, the um, not ameliorate, but, well, yeah, but maybe blur the importance and value of, of child work, because we, you could have a child sitting with you and helping you with most household tasks, but there's a difference between that and, and abuse of child labor, but it's important and even enjoyable for children to know that they're contributing to work that they'll continue in adulthood. So I think I, you know, just as a little side note to Muhammad's question, that things that we see as maybe rites of passage that have been separated because of the ways that we live now, or we live in our in um, maybe the cultures of people who are present in this room, um, maybe those don't really define a life and and all that a life is capable of. So it's an interesting question in that aspect as well. So thank you. Yeah, you couldn't see me, but I was nodding here, and I completely agree. And not only that, um, I think that by preventing children to contribute to family tasks, we are not only depriving them of the possibility of actually learning to do things before they have to do them, but we are also depriving them to, the, from, you know, by taking off responsibility from them. We take them this, from the sense of life, right? Like we, we take them off the possibility of feeling helpful, feeling useful, feeling valuable. So I am I am a hundred percent in agreement with you. And on this subject, and it has almost nothing to do, uh, but apart from this subject, there is a really nice half self help uh, book I read a few years ago um, called uh, Hunting Gathering Parenting. No, Hunt Gather Parent. Um, which uh, I, I did quite enjoy reading um, and that talks a lot about uh, how to engage in better relationships with your children and making them feel part of, of a unit which is what actually you know we all want um, including us as children uh, we want part to be part of our family so if you guys want to check that out that was fun Thank you. Thank you. I wrote it. I put that in the chat. I'm, I'm going to look that up. And I'm, I'm also extrapolating that to people of all ages, you know, to elderly people. I've, I've been spending time with my father-in-law and he's 91. And I'm, I'm noticing, even though he's not able to, he, he's, he was an engineer and able to fix anything and actually taught me how to fix or feel like I could fix anything too in a house. And, and something that I find challenging is how to help him find tasks that he can feel useful at, you know, how, how he can actually safely fix a thing. And, and ha because of the way that, that we live, again, it's difficult to, um, to just find things like that, that are, you know, that you can use, where you can use your hands and your mind and, and, and be neat, you know, feel needed and achieve success in something so that's it's challenging for the very young and and for the elderly as well 
to to still um, remain connected in this in this way that that you and your partner have discussed through foraging. And and I'm I'm curious, how did you arrive at this research, at this topic of research? And forgive me if you've already um, discussed this before I got here. Yeah, I mean, I I can always repeat myself. I I do like the sound of my own voice when it's not recorded, uh, so, <laughs> so I can keep speaking. Um, yeah, I as as uh, Katarina introduced me in the beginning of the, of the talk, I'm an evolution biologist. And I am interested in human behavior, and I am interested in in the evolution of life history, so how uh, behavior basically changes during the lifetime, um, and how this evolves. And um, and then you know, like you, you you engage with one specific subject of, of of research, and then things move a little bit further, and um, and then I did my PhD on the evolution of childhood, and this brought me to East Africa to do fieldwork, and in there I actually spent more and more time with um, children and parents in um, in a relaxed environment, right, in which you actually see their family families carrying out uh, their their daily life, and um, and I am actually really now very interested in, in looking at this age-graded division of labor. Uh, so this is uh, this is what I would like to keep working on right now, if that makes sense. Oh, we can't hear Victoria. Uh, yeah, I think this is such an interesting discussion, and I love the the dimension that Victoria brought in. That's why I like these type of clubhouse talks discussions so much because we can we have people from different backgrounds bringing like completely different levels of the discussions and uh, i wanted to check in with you Nyaria. um we've been talking for an hour and a half i wanted to give you the opportunity to have dinner and, <laughs> and do something else um but this was really wonderful and maybe um by the, but at some point you you would you know come back and and share with us updates of your work because i think it's really interesting and uh we enjoy i think i enjoyed the discussion very much so thank you i will be very happy to bring more data especially when i i do actually get data on on children contribution to family um, or household uh work you know at the household level because um, it seems like Victoria is really into that. Um, so I will be happy to come back at some point in the future, definitely. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I had fun. Um, I had fun having this conversation and presenting my work very much. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I and I also like hearing that you enjoyed it too. That's very important. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And, and thank, thank you to the audience as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you for coming, asking questions and, and uh, leaving comments and uh, just being here. Um, it's always wonderful to have these discussions. So, um, yeah, if you want, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We'll have uh, tomorrow Dr. Talbot coming. Uh, he's in Canada researcher talking about the 
nociceptor neurons and um, actually how they also perform immunosurveillance. So pain receptors and how pain receptors um, are kind of interwined with uh, the immune system. So that's really interesting. It's kind of a new field of research. So if you think that's interesting, join us again. Thank you, Ilaria. And I hope we'll speak again sometime and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Sorry about the call. Oh, bye. <laughs> All right. Thank you friends, for being here. Thank you, Katarina. See you next time. Thank you, Victoria. It was a great discussion. Wonderful. Okay, I close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.